because because we have guests today and and because we we have people who are who listen by podcast uh, but then some people drop in here's here's why we're in James chapter 5 right just by way of clarification one of our convictions as a church is that we don't need pastors and elders and leaders who get up here and just say well I feel like this is what people need to know today um, we don't we don't uh, navigate it that way we lean very heavily on scripture god has given scripture god inspired scripture god moved men to write scripture and he sustained his scripture so what we want to do is we want to move methodically through scripture so that we can have the full context of what god has revealed to us so we're in james 5 because it follows james 4 which followed james 3 which followed james 2 which followed james 1 and so we just we take a, a chapter and we take the verses and we just want to teach and equip the church with what God's word says so that we have a good understanding of it. So that's why we're in, in James chapter five, because last week we were in James chapter four. All right, so James chapter five, y'all, this one is, uh, I just titled it Faith in the Caution of Riches. Okay, now I wanna say from the very beginning that if we look at scripture with very, a very clear understanding, wealth in and of itself, riches in and of themselves are not bad. They are not evil. In fact, Abraham was incredibly wealthy whenever you take a look at who he is. And you can see that God blessed many with wealth throughout the Old Testament and, and throughout Scripture. It's what wealth does to us and what we aspire for in wealth. That's the problem. So it needs to be very clear. A scriptural understanding of riches and money and wealth is not that money is evil. That's misquoted quite a bit. Most people say money is the root of evil. It's not. Scripture very clearly says it's the love of money. Okay, so let's let's move that to the side. Okay, and let, let's keep that understanding that the wealth is actually can be a good thing whenever it's viewed in the right perspective. Because if we see it as a blessing from God so that we may bless others, fantastic. But if we see wealth as what we've earned and what we possess and what we deserve, and that's the source of comfort and peace in this world, then it is wrong. Okay, so we just need to address that because the very first verse is going to jump in there and he's going to be talking about how the rich need to weep and howl for miseries. And, and I've heard a lot of sermons preached throughout the years where, where money's evil and money's bad. And I look at scripture and it's, no, it's the love of money. And there's a huge difference. So here we go. James chapter five, verses one through six. James writes, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your, have, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Happy Sunday, everybody. Okay, <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a pretty condemning passage. But y'all, may we humbly just say, praise God that he gives us passages like that to remind us and to caution us. Because there is a way in this world that seems right to man. The scripture says its way, is the, it, it ends in death. I think this is one of those we one of these we really need to pay attention to. I'm going to even go ahead and say, even as a church, okay. So this is going to get into some church life stuff real quick. Even as a church, we need to consider 
come now you rich. Now the church is a gathering of God's people wherever we are. They're the called out ones of God. So even if we were to be scattered throughout Fort Smith and Italy and Africa, wherever God's people are, there is a collective universal church. And then within each city, there are churches that gather right in, into a place. But the whole church is, is God's people. I believe that sometimes when those gatherings of churches come together, we need to be very careful that we aren't also guilty of verses one through six. Okay, so the way that we do ministry across life, the way that that our giving goes is we have been very intentional that we want about 30 to 40 percent of all that comes into the church to go back out to missions and ministry and not be our own. Um, the fact that we have um, these nice looking speakers right here is because another church has been so generous throughout a whole year to say, hey, whatever we have, you can have. And so people need to be able to hear so they can hear the word. So they gave us a sound system and. And we've done this, but even these are not ours. They will go wherever they need to go if there's another church that needs another church plant. We're going we're gonna to do that. But what we bring in, the vast majority of what we bring in, we want to go out to others. And uh, that's why we also gather in a cafeteria and gathered on porches and in living rooms is because we didn't want to, to just make a kingdom in and of ourselves because it's not Cross Life's kingdom, it's Christ's kingdom. And we want whatever finances that come in, to, to bless those who, who are part of the church and a part of the kingdom and those who have a need in this world that we can meet. All right, so I'm saying all that to say churches, I think that we also need to be evaluating ourselves here. Let's just, let's break this down. What is verses one through six, what does it really mean so that we know how to live a life that is all about God and not ourselves? Number one, who are the rich? We got to consider that. And we're probably saying this from going, well, I'm, I'm not the rich, right? Um, number two, I think this is it. What's wrong with their wealth? It's not that their wealth is bad, but what's wrong with their wealth. And then the third thing is going to be the caution, the comfort then for us. All right. So look, let's just break it down. God's word says, come now, you rich weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, there's probably a unique thing that's happening for us right here. He's talking to the rich. Well, are we the rich or are they the rich? Who are the rich? We have to answer, what does James mean whenever he says, come you rich? And I've tried to preface this a little bit before, and I'll, I'll come back to this. Um, but we really need to wrestle with who are the rich. And in the most definitive way, if I said, are you rich? Then your first thought might be like, no, like I'm not rich. We don't usually go, mm, I'm, well, kind of. We usually say yes or no. It's usually a definitive answer. And when we say no, we're usually thinking, well, have you seen my bank accounts? Have you seen the car I drive? Have you seen the house I live in? Did you know that, that we don't even um, own our own house? We, we rent and like, we start like justifying how we're not rich. And yet every one of those indicators is actually an indication of how rich we truly are. The fact that we would say, have you seen my bank account? It only has $20 in it right now. We had a bank, we have a bank account. We have something sitting there. Um, have you seen the car I drive? that the car that you drive, that's your possession, right? I want us to be careful that we don't say, well, we're not the rich because we don't live life in luxury. We're not the rich because we live life like this. You know the real context of that? The, the understanding of rich in this passage is anyone who has more than enough to live on. Therefore, you and I are much richer than we deserve. 
and we're much richer than many other people around us. Because I'm looking around us and I'm looking around the room and I'm lovingly saying like, we come from, from different socioeconomic levels, but I think that, that we are all much richer than so many other people in this world and in this community and in this neighborhood. The problem is not um, in the word rich. It's in the understanding of the rich, right? So if we have, like what if it's not based on an economic scale? What if it's based on what we have to live on? So if we get to go home and we get to eat and, and, and we're willing to give more than, I'm just gonna tell you this passage isn't really for us. It's the identity of the rich. It's what's wrong with their riches. And what's wrong with their riches is how they view them, how they treat them, and how they acquire them. It's not the fact that they have money. I will say on the front end also, I know many godly, wealthy people. The reason they make money, and a quote from one of them, Ricky, the reason I do these business deals is so that the money that I get, I can put it into the other ministries because everything that I have is meant to be given to others. I have enough. I have everything I need to live on, he says. And yet I do this so that I can just funnel those, that wealth to other places so that they can do ministry. That's a right understanding of wealth. There are also very many godly people that we might esteem as poor. But they live a life that is, is relying upon and glorifying to God. And then on the flip side, I know that there are ungodly wealthy and ungodly poor as well. It's how we see and how we see our riches. That's the context of verse one. So come now, you rich people who have more than enough to live on, and yet you don't share with anyone else. You need to be weeping and howling for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's the context. That's what he's really trying to get at. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna keep moving here. And I do want us to consider, as we get to a really hard text, right? So I've tried to lay some context. Are you and I, I'm gonna ask it again, just in a different context. Are you and I the rich? And if so, like if, if we identify with these passages as James is talking, then we need to repent. But also, if we read this and we're like, that's, that's definitely not me, then praise the Lord that he has protected our heart from being like this. We can't like be proud and say, huh, figure that one out. Look at me, I've got this all figured out. No, praise God that he protected us from that temptation. But at the same time, there is comfort at the end of this because I do believe that you and I need James 5, 1 through 6 either to caution us as Christians or to comfort us as Christians. This is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's not a small thing whenever God's prophets would say weep and howl in misery. In the Old Testament, it meant that judgment was coming and there would be, there would be an army that would come in and, and just devastate the village they would kill people they would they would steal from them and, and God's people would be left in ruins because they had sinned and God sent judgment upon them at the same time we see what God does to the ungodly throughout the Old Testament we still need the Old Testament it gives a lot of weight to understanding uh, what God's judgment is going to be like y'all what I like about James saw a preface all tied up into part one is to remember James is all about telling us what genuine faith actually looks like. We all know people who, who are good people and they wear the Christian t-shirt and they show up on a Sunday morning and they, they sing the right songs and they're at every event and yet we look at the fruit of their lives and it does not match up with scripture. 
So there can be a disconnect in what we profess and what we live. And Jesus even says that this is a, there are people who will profess with their lips and yet deny him with their life. And so James is really powerful in this. It's basically like a really hard litmus test for us. Is my faith genuine or is it not? And so for our journey through James, we found out that genuine faith will delight whenever trials and hardships come. Not because they're enjoyable, but because we know that they are refining us to be more like Christ. Genuine faith will embrace trials so that our faith can be stronger. And then in, Gen in James 1, uh, genuine faith will see that everything that comes, everything good in our lives is not a result of our working, but it comes down for the Father of lights who blesses us. Mm -hmm. And genuine faith in chapter 1 tells us that we can't just hear the word and not do the word or we deceive ourselves and our faith is not real. That was a really hard passage says uh, in there that we must be doers of the word, not hearers only, or we deceive ourselves. It also says in James 1, that genuine faith will bridle the tongue and that it will care for the widows and orphans. And then in, in chapter 2, genuine faith will not show favoritism to other people simply because of their wealth and, or their poverty, but that there is equal love for all. And genuine faith, according to James 2, says that we must have faith, but if faith, faith does not produce works, then that faith is dead. We can't just say that we have faith and do nothing with it. And then genuine faith in, um, in James chapter 3 says again that we will control the tongue, not simply from cursing, but as Andy did, it includes all of the sin that, that is tied into our tongue, our gossip, our slandering, our promotion of ourselves and our defense of ourselves. We have to be willing to let our tongue come under the conviction of our faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then also genuine faith in James chapter 3 says that if we need wisdom, we know that we have full access and we ask God. And genuine faith in chapter 4 says quit being worldly people because to, be, to have friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so cling closer to God and not the ways of this world, which led us to James chapter 4 a little bit further on. And genuine faith will not boast about tomorrow because we know that we are guaranteed nothing tomorrow except that for what we have today, which leads us all overwhelmingly to this passage whenever he just suddenly turns and he says, basically, therefore, you wealthy, you need to weep and howl because you don't get it. That's where we are right now. So the question is, are we the rich or are we not? And I cannot answer that question for you, and I'm not meant to. God speaks to the heart. God convicts. The role of the elders, leaders, and teachers in the church are to equip you and to help you understand Scripture so that God can work within you. And then we spend life trying to figure that out, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. We need one another. Okay, so... Here's what's wrong with their wealth. This is where you start to determine, is this me or is this not? What is wrong with their wealth? If I've already said that wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing and that God blesses with wealth, here's what they did wrong. We've got, got two things. Verse 3 and verse 5. So we're, we're dropping four out of there for right now. Verse 3 and 5. He says to the rich, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And in verse 5 he says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and it's self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So here's the first thing that he says about the rich is that the way that they the way that they spend their wealth, that's the problem. Y'all, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not gonna lie. Like we get an extra bit of money kicked in, I'm like, Amazon Prime, I can have this in two days. 
And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying there's a heart issue in all of this that underlies, and that's where we have to be sensitive to the spirit. But he does say that the rich that need to weep and howl for misery, they've laid up treasure in the last days. And we've probably got our minds clicking over to do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And we'll, we'll get to that. But they've laid up all their treasures here on earth. Everything that is joyful and brings them satisfaction and contentment and peace is in all of their possessions around them. And then he says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And that's the, So the problem is their selfishness and their self-centeredness with their wealth. That's it. They have wealth and they're selfish with it and they're self-centered with it. And their selfishness and their self-centeredness with their riches is so that they can have greater treasures, so that they can have greater luxury, so they can have greater indulgences. In essence, they y'all have, quote, fattened their hearts. In other words, all of their wealth is all about them. That's what he has a problem with. Whereas genuine faith says, praise God that you have blessed me with this. And some of it, by the way, I do think needs to be set aside because in Proverbs it says that the godly leave a good inheritance for their kids. It says that it's wise to do that. So, so putting money aside and, and, and keeping some there, there's actually wisdom that we can find in Scripture with how we deal with money. Their problem is they're dealing with money. They're just dealing with it for their own selfish purposes. That's a problem, church. It's a problem personally, and it's a problem for churches or anyone who's doing kingdom work. That all the wealth that God gives us was never meant to be for us. It's meant so that we can be a blessing to others. It's not about the wealth. It's, it's really about what does the wealth do and what's the purpose of the wealth in that person's life. Because if we're not careful, then, then, say, or then, then God who sent his son to be the savior of us and to give us all perfect peace and contentment, Satan has sent money to be all the perfect peace and contentment for us in this world. And so we have to choose who our savior is. And for the rich in this passage, their salvation, their savior is money and wealth. Whereas we as a church need to humbly be able to say, that's a great tool, that's a great benefit, that's a great wealth, but my savior is in Christ alone. And we've seen scripture, he provides for our very needs, like in every single way. This is incredibly hard for me to go through also, because this is probably gonna be Chas texting me on another day saying, have you listened to your own sermon, right? Because this is, I'm, I'm with y'all on this. Is our tendency, y'all, to spend what God has given us on our own luxuries, our own self-indulgence, in essence, our own hearts. But my heart is bent towards that, and probably so is yours. We deserve certain things in life. We've earned it. We earn and deserve absolutely nothing, and God has given us total grace. Like, it's his grace, and it's his mercy, that says, I will bless you in this way. Dave Ramsey does tell us, if we're, we're trying to evaluate where we are, Dave Ramsey, in my house we call him Devil Dave because he really challenges us and we don't always like what he says. But Dave Ramsey has really good financial advice in many ways. But he says, if you want to see what you truly value, not what you say you value, if you want to see where your heart really is and what you truly value, look at your checkbook. And he says that where we spend our money is what we truly value. And that's pretty convicting. I don't want to look at my checkbook right now. I'm just telling you because 
But that's true. Where we spend our money, that's where our value is. And uh, so what are, what are the rich value? We come all the way back to this. They're rich value to themselves and not others. That already disconnects from the gospel. From Jesus Christ who said that I love the world so much that I will step into it and I will be beaten and marred for their sake. There's a complete selflessness in the person of Christ and for us to be like Christ and we must be selfless as well. I'm not saying empty your bank accounts and give every single thing away. I'm saying what's the heart of the wealth that we have sitting there for us, whether it's $20 or $20,000 or more than that, what's the heart of it and why is it there? The humble Christian looks at it and says, God, is this my wealth or yours and what would you have me do with it? That's a dangerous prayer. So James is not calling them out because they're rich. He's calling them out because they focus on themselves to the neglect of others. May we not be that. And if you're not that, if you freely give it all away, then that's the grace of God in your life that he's moved you in that way. Listen to, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. We quote this one quite a bit here. The first verse. And they devoted themselves. So the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so we look at that as a church and say, what does the church need to be focused on? Four things. Um, well, I would say five. Being devoted is something in and of itself. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Those are, those are five essentials for the early church. But then look what happens. When those early believers came together, verse 43 says, It all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having their favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verse 44, and all who believed, church, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing. Okay, first off, because I've heard this, I do not believe that this is in any way a form of socialism. I do not think that that's the intent of that, that passage. And so I, I need to, to have that there because I've heard some say, see, socialism, it's right there. No, it's not. It's a heart and the commonality of all believers who have a heart to serve those who have less than them. Like, that's it. This is not a political statement in any form or fashion. This is the heart of the church. The church comes together and as one body says, I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to Christ and he's the head. And if he's the head and we're the body, then everything that I have belongs to everybody else. And we should be striving side by side. And it's not always financial. Sometimes it's gifts of wisdom and different talents so that we can serve one another. But the idea of the early church, about 120 people sit in the upper room after Christ was resurrected and they're, they're praying and, and there's, there's this moment of uh, Pentecost where the Holy Spirit's poured out on them and they're preaching and they're telling others. And then it's in chapter two that the church is really kind of born at that moment. And Peter's going to preach pretty soon in that moment. And it's going to be the first, uh, first sermon of the first inauguration of the church. And he's going to focus on Christ. 
crucified. But that early church focused also on this, that everything that I possess is not my own, it's for others as well. If they have a need and I can serve it, then why wouldn't I? That's the heart. So James is kind of speaking and hearkening all the way back to that. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 corrects us as well. Matthew chapter 6 says, do not, Christians, Jesus speaking, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'm thinking of James who says you fattened your own heart for slaughter because you've placed your treasure where it shouldn't be. You know, everything that I possess in this world, like the house, the bank account, the, the truck, which I waited 15 years on, okay, every, like nothing that I possess gets to go with me. Um, I heard a, an old pastor say, you don't get to take a U-Haul with you to heaven, right? You don't, you don't get to take it with you. What we have that we do get to take with us is, is our faith, by which Christ clings to us and we cling to Christ. Everything else then starts to take a different form. Everything else, if it's temporary and will pass away with this world, then just becomes a means of enjoyment that's given to us by the grace of God. Nice homes, fantastic, absolutely. How do we use that to reflect the glory of Christ? Bank accounts, absolutely, fantastic. How is that used to reflect the glory of Christ? Nice clothes, nice possessions, nice cars, nice trucks, not evil in and of themselves. What's the heart of why we have them? That's what James is trying to get us back to. And he says, if we live lives of luxury and self-indulgence to the neglect of others, then we have entirely missed it. So therefore weep and howl for the miseries coming upon us. But this world will pass away. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What is it that we have stored up for that life? Because this life will end. I don't know if mine will end in, in, in one day or, or one week or one month, one year, 100 years. I don't know, but I do know that death in this world will come. And then I get all of eternity. And if I've laid up all my treasures here, then what a sad existence that this is all the treasure I have. And I've established nothing in heaven. So all that we have will pass away. You can, you can consider what... With Dave Ramsey, and whenever he's the most challenging devil, Dave, what is what does our pocketbook look like? Are, are they really lives of indulgence? When we live lives of self-indulgence, we ultimately choose ourselves over others and over those whom God has brought into our lives. Everyone who comes into our life is a means of ministry in some form or fashion. And I'm not even saying it's all about money we give. It's about what has God given us so that we can bless others. Here's the other thing that they did wrong. So the, the first thing was that they indulged themselves with lives of luxury. Check this one out. It's how they got their wealth. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's another big problem. The rich to which he is speaking at this moment, they have... They have hoarded their own wealth and they have neglected those people who worked for them. The laborers who mowed your fields, you didn't pay them. He says, you kept it back by fraud. 
You told them that they didn't really earn that much. You possessed it for yourselves. And then we're going to get to the comfort of that here in a second. And the other thing is they are condemning. They're taking the righteous people into the courts and they're murdering them. Okay, so here's a here's something to consider too. Notice how all of a sudden he brings in the righteous person. It's been nowhere, nowhere in James 5 verses 1 through 6. He's been talking to the rich and you and I are wrestling with, okay, Lord, what would you have me to learn from this? Or what peace would you have me to get from this? Now he says... It looks like it's two distinctly different groups. He says that they're the rich who act in this way. This is the fruit of their life. This is how they live. They live for the world. And then there are the righteous. Right? So, so he's not talking necessarily about the righteous rich. He's talking more directly about, hey, this is the fruit of your life. And it looks nothing like righteousness. And then there are those who live a righteous life. And you're taking advantage of them. And you're condemning them. And you're murdering them. So, so consider that. Okay? But they treated their laborers unjustly. They refused to pay them what they earned. And even if the righteous were doing the right things, then the, the rich would use their wealth to drag them into courts, take more from them, or even condone their murdering. See the wickedness? It's not the wealth that's the problem. It's the wickedness in the heart of why the wealth is there. The, the ones who live a life that James is talking about like that, they, they don't possess Christ, or if they did, then they've strayed very, very far from him to the degree that they no longer see the connection with the righteous person, and so they're willing to condemn them. So he's talking to the selfish, righteous person. And, uh, he doesn't seem to be speaking of rich Christians in this moment. Because if we live lives like that, then we are denying the authenticity of our faith. And we might think, well, no, if we have faith, then we can't lose it. There's a, a really haunting verse where Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says, Demas in love with the world has departed from me. Like there was one who was walking right alongside Paul, who we all know is like, you know, the, the ultimate of all Christians. Like nobody's going to measure up to who Paul is. And I want to meet Paul one day in heaven. But there is Demas who's worked alongside Paul and shared ministry with him and served alongside him and Demas leaves because he's in love with the world. He sees something in the world that he wants and allures him away more than he wants Christ. And so he leaves and leaves Paul simply there standing alone. And there are other passages that speak of the same thing, that there are those who worked and labored in the faith. And this is going to mess with some of our theology. And it seems like they walk away. And the writers say it's because they proved that they were never with us. We just want to be very humble, scripture open before us, that we don't say, well, that would never be me. By the grace of God, we pray it will never be us. He holds us close. Okay, so I want to keep going just a little bit further. So what's the caution and what's the comfort for us? Simply this, the caution is that we are surrounded by the world. You and I are. You turn on the TV, you welcome the world in. I turn on the TV a lot, by the way, okay? So I'm not saying, like, throw the TV out the door. I'm saying, but when the TV comes on, when the radio comes on, whenever we go to the store, we are surrounded by the world. And the world's wisdom makes some sort of sense to us. The danger is, is that the wisdom of the world is simply the wisdom of the world, and this world is passing away. So there's a caution that I want you to hear, that as you hear those who give you financial and life advice... If you realize that it's turning us back in on ourselves, 
then we want to be incredibly cautious because that does not match up with Christ who did not turn back in to himself, but he turned out towards us. So keep in mind, cross life, that the promise of satisfaction of wealth is a lie. It does give us peace. But what were we singing and what does Romans 8 say? That, that nothing can come against us. That, that we're not going to have total peace because nothing can overwhelm us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. What does Jesus even say? Jesus says that, that to consider the lilies of the field and how God so covers them with beauty and grandeur and our life is worth more than, than the lily and our life is worth more than the doves and the pigeons of the air that God takes care of. So he will take care of his people. We need to be sensitive that he is he wanting to use us to take care of those concerns in this world too. And I believe absolutely. Anytime we come together as a church, if it's to come together and we have a holy huddle and then we don't go out from this place and do ministry and serve others, then we're not doing what we were meant to do. We're, we come together to be equipped, empowered, encouraged, and then we go serve others in whatever capacity God gives us. So if we're not careful, then you and I, I just listen to this. I, I wrote it and I don't want to stray from this. If we're not careful believers, if we're not careful, then we will believe that money will give us more peace, that money will give us more comfort, and that money will give us more promise. To the world and in the world, this makes perfect sense. In a world that loves money, more money spurs greater love of money, though. But money is meant for this world alone, and when it passes away, so will our houses, our cars, our bank accounts, our clothes, our books, our gadgets, our land, our food pantries. It may be that we've displaced the eternal comfort that can only be found in Christ with temporary indulgences of this world. That which is eternal, which should give us greatest peace and security, we've looked at indulgences of this world and said, this is what gives me right now. C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily satisfied. We were meant to taste of something much greater, a banqueting feast in heaven, and yet we're having little appetizers right now and satisfied. We have to be careful. Now, what is the, the, the very, very specific Christian couples? Okay, I, I just got to push to this. Please listen. The truth of the effect of the importance of money in a marriage did you know that money is one of the most common reasons that couples will divorce? And those statistics in the world and in the church are the same. Money is that powerful in a marriage that it becomes a central reason that many couples will divorce and separate. Why? Because money becomes the God or becomes the glue that everybody's focusing on for that peace and that comfort in that marriage. Whenever if you move Christ who is all peace and you remove him from that marriage and you allow this to become the Savior, not Christ as the Savior of the marriage, then of course it's going to divide. Of course it will. There's only one thing in all of existence that holds all things together. And scripture says that is Christ. So Christian, uh, Christian couples, Christian singles, whoever, whenever there are relationships, if Christ is not the middle and he holds all things together, if money is, then it will absolutely fall apart. But hear this, Matthew 6, 24. No one, Jesus says, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. That is not Ricky. That is Jesus. It's him saying that you cannot strive for all uh, the goals and the, the peace and security of money and strive for Christ at the same time. You must choose one or the other or you will because you will hate one and serve the other. 
I'm telling you, this is going to be preached in all the American churches. Absolutely. Right. I know. The love of money is so powerful that it will buy for the very attention and affection that we should have for God. Is what it comes down to. That's what he's saying. Everything that should be totally for Christ tends to give it tends to get put on money. And that's why I said that that God sent his son to be the savior and Satan gave us money. And people believe that it's a savior. I'm not saying I, I said that wrong. Satan uses money to serve as a savior for people. And so we need to consider that. First Timothy 16, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money because it drives us to do which we, that which we wouldn't do. But to let money affect the joy of our life, the effectiveness of our life, that means that money has become the master and not Christ. So that's your caution. Now, where's your comfort? It's, it's hidden. I love James 5.4. Look at James 5.4, and you, you should probably underline this, because have you and I not worked for those that we think maybe are not paying us what we're worth? They're, they're pushing us uh, to the limit. We don't feel like they are honoring us in the work that we have done. Or you and I are sitting here, we're saying, well, the rich keep getting richer, and I'm just right here stuck. Verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4 of James 5 says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They are crying out against you. This is what I find absolutely comforting. That the laborers, that the rich are oppressing. They are crying out against them. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You might not feel like God is in that moment. You might feel the oppression of the rich and absolutely are wicked people going to take advantage of you. Absolutely, Christians. You know, the danger of humility in a wicked world is that wicked will try to swallow humility. But Christ, who is humility, has already overcome this world. And so we walk humbly in that. And whenever we cry out to God, he will hear us. We don't have to seek vengeance and retribution on our own. Scripture says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. He says, I hear your voice. I know where you are. I know what's going on. And what you need is to know that I hear you right now. So comfort for Christians is that in a money-driven, wicked, self-indulgent world, when you live rightly, Christ hears you and he will take care of you. So here's the hard part for us. First off, the Lord hears and sees the Lord will execute justice. And then I'm almost done. Justice will happen. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. He will either execute it on them directly, or here's a hard part for us to just to try and think through, or he won't visit it on them directly. He'll either do it directly, or he will not do it directly. And when he doesn't do it directly, it may very well be that 20 years later, they repented of that sin and all of the evil and wickedness that they have done has now been poured onto the bloody beaten back of Jesus Christ. The reason that we find comfort in Christ is because we no longer operate in the wickedness of the world because Christ has saved us. We think differently. We feel differently. We act differently. Our treasure is absolutely different. But he will execute justice and it's either visited on them and, and they experience the hardship and the punishment of that, or it's visited upon Jesus Christ who bore God's wrath on their behalf. Either way, justice will be done. We see it all throughout scripture. 
We just don't always see it right now. And we may never see it in its fullness. But we do know that God will do it. The evil will not prosper. Listen to Proverbs 25. Fret not yourselves. I'm sorry, 24, 19 through 20. Proverbs 24. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. And be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Question is, wonderful verse, do we trust it or do we not? If we trust it, we will live accordingly. All right, so y'all listen to this and, and then we will conclude. Y'all, there is a great release that happens when we orient our lives completely, like our security, our desires, our emotions, whenever we orient our lives completely on Christ, because when we fully grasp God, who would not spare his own son, Jesus, and that he's the very same God who will provide everything that we need, and when we realize that Jesus Christ is the very same God, I'm sorry, and we realize that Jesus Christ, who gave himself willingly on the cross and has adopted us into the Father and made us sons and daughters of God, and whenever we realize that the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us by God and by the Son, so that we can minute by minute be securely in the presence of God and reminded of Christ, when we remember that there is a God greater than this world who lovingly sacrificed himself on our behalf and who has all things under his power, then what fear can we have and what greater treasure do we need? If he is the one who can hear the harvesters in the field, then he can hear you crying out in the middle of the night with all your cares and concerns. And he says, cast them on me because I do care for you. Our greatest need is a savior. And he's met that. And our greatest riches are something eternal. And Christ is that. And Jesus Christ is the treasure that never fades or rusts or falls apart. You know, he's bringing us home to his city where we can dwell with him and unapproachable life forever and ever. It's the until then, how will we live? We will see our wealth rightly, that it's a blessing from God. We will not live self-indulgent lives, but at the same time balance that with there is wisdom and being a good financial steward of all that God has given you so that you can do further ministry in the future and to others. But true wealth is simply this. We've been given an inheritance by the God of all eternity, the God who speaks stars into existence and who spoke in the world existed and said, you're my son and my daughter. And to which of us, if, if my sons and daughters come to me and they say, here's what I need to live in this moment right now, dad. I, as an earthly father, am not gonna say, too bad, figure that one out. No, I'm gonna meet his need. And we have God, the eternal father, who has all of existence under his control and holding all things together. And whenever we come to him and we say, but God, I have need right now. How will we eat? You know what? A good father has already provided the food and the provision so that we don't even have to ask that. Like it's already in the works. It's just, do we trust him? That's what all of finances really comes down to. Do we trust God with our finances? Do we trust that he will provide or do we not? Do we trust ourselves and our means or do we trust him? So therefore, James was writing to those rich people who essentially had said, we're going to trust the ways of the world. We're going to trust our own hearts. We're going to trust what we need, and we're not going to trust God. And in doing so, they denied their faith. And so James is saying, I think in a very loving way, actually, though it doesn't feel that way, he's saying, you need to watch out because this is not going to go well. Like he's warning them. Why do we warn our kids? Because we know the judgment to come. It's a loving act. It's not condemnation, it's love. Y'all, may we hear it as that, and may we humbly consider 
where we might have a tendency to lean in that way. Take caution, but take great comfort that God hears you in the midst of this busy, chaotic, crazy world. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You even tell us in Scripture how good you are as the Father. That which of us, being earthly fathers, if our, if our son asks us for bread, we would give him a rock. No, we would give him exactly what he needs. And then you, Jesus, say, how much more does my truly good father, how much more would he give? How much better is he? Lord, we boast in that we have a good father. We take comfort in that. But Lord, I do pray for, for believers as we are listening to this because we do come on financial hard times and we're wondering, where are you in this? You're with us. That's the thing. The shepherd never leaves the sheep. The refiner never leaves the refining fire. You're always with us. We just begin to look at the dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death. We begin to look at, at the dangers that we see coming. And we forget that the shepherd is there with us, ready to contend for us and contend with us to keep us close by your side as you lead us towards heaven. So Lord, help us not to stray. And I pray that you help us to see money rightly. Lord, as a blessing from you, and help us to understand how we can bless others with the riches of what you've given us. Even if it's an extra 20, Lord, how can we bless others with that? And it's not even all financial. Maybe it's just the simple texting or calling. You've given us health. You've given us the, a mind to think. You've given us a sincerity of emotions. Lord, how would you have us to reorient our lives so that they're not spent on ourselves and they're spent solely for you? So that one day when we stand before you, we will hear, well done my good and faithful servant. Lord, thank you that we can be believers who love your word and are willing to be shaped by it. All glory and praise goes to you and not ourselves.